0: Once again, good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ezekiel, chapter 1. Don't hesitate. Take a look at that table of contents to find your way there. This is our The God You Long For teaching series, and this morning we're talking about that He is glorious. You guys doing well? Yeah. Okay, cool. You guys ready for a Bible study? Yeah. Okay, cool. We're doing theology. Theology is the study of uh, God. And... Uh, Mike, push me just a tad a little bit more, if you would, please. I'm going to back off. Um, theology is a study of God, and the um, reason why we need to study God is because our concept of God determines the quality of our relationship with God. If, you're, if your relationship with God is kind of flat right now, it's because you have a, probably a bad concept, or a poor concept, or a low concept of God. And so we're studying about God, it helps us with our concept of God. And it determines the quality of our relationship with God. And not only does that help us with our, our quality of our relationship with God, but our quality of our relationship with God determines how we're going to deal with life. How we respond to the events of life, both the trials, the temptations of life. Not only that, it's our concept of God that helps us in what we convey to others about God. And so we've been in this uh, teaching series, The God You Long For, looking at His attributes, His characteristics, His nature who He is. And uh, let me just say, I have, I have a confession to make here this morning, and it has to do with what I felt a little bit last week as we have headed into some pretty deep water as it relates to the nature of God. And I, I walked away a little bit uh, frustrated. And uh, up to that point, I think I'd been feeling somewhat decent, but, but it kind of hit its peak when we started talking about the holiness of God. Probably started when we were talking about the Trinity and then... You know, the uh, God is everywhere, Psalm 139, and it's just like, wow. I mean, these topics that we're hitting are just, they are really overwhelming. In fact, here's, here's the thing. There was a couple things that came to mind as I prayed this last week, and I, I felt like the Lord was uh, making very clear to me. And here's the first thing, uh, that as we, we have embarked upon this study, that God is so great and so good that any attempt to portray or convey Him falls infinitely short no matter how hard we work. I felt a little bit like that. I felt, and if you're really beginning to try to understand who God is, it should be a lot like trying to pour the Pacific Ocean into a thimble. Not, not to say that your, your brain is, well, okay, maybe I am. But uh, it is. I mean, we, we can't fully contain or understand or grasp his, his greatness, and oh my goodness, his goodness! <laughs> it's wonderful. It's outstanding. It's great. And so, I felt a little bit as I walked away from that. And God's like saying to me as I as I dove into this topic, He says, "Of course, of course, you're not. You're going to have all eternity to to explore Me and know Me, and to experience Me. And He's an eternal being, and so that should be expected. But there was another thing here, and." And let me preface it by saying that based on this study here this morning that He is glorious, you were made to enjoy the riches of the glory of God. You were made to enjoy the riches of the glory of God. That's why you're on this planet Earth. And there is no topic that brings you greater healing and wholeness than beholding His glory. And no topic... Brings with it more spiritual warfare. And man, I felt it last weekend right here. Here's what the enemy, and if you, by the way, if you don't believe that we have an adversary, he's got you, okay? So if you don't believe that he exists, he's got you. And then if you're kind of preoccupied with him, he's got you. Either way, you don't swing to these extremes, but you have to be prepared and... Uh, and Jesus conquered him, but he still uh, comes after us, along with our own sinful nature and then, you know, the values of our culture. We have our society that comes up against us all the time. But we have, we have a, an adversary. And uh, he comes to kill, steal, and destroy, John 10, 10. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. And so it's important, certainly, to be prepared. I gave you some verses there, 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says that in the beholding of the glory of God, we become whole. That's where we... We find our wholeness. But it says also in 2 Corinthians four four that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. If, if you're here and you're kind of wondering what's the big deal about Jesus, it, it could be that you're being blinded. Now maybe you've gotten a, gotten a glimpse of Jesus. You've been captivated by him, but it's become a little bit, maybe you've become passive or lethargic in your relationship with him. Well, it could be that the enemy is working in your life as, as it's found in Second Corinthians eleven three. That Paul says that I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your your minds may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion. So he will try to get you to make anything other than him the center of your life. That's what we're going to talk about today, obviously, with the glory of God. So that being said, I'm going to pray in just a moment, and and what we need more than anything, what you need more than anything week in and week out, is not uh, that you would have less problems. I mean, we all probably want less problems, but what you need more than anything is more of God, because it is in the light of His glory that the things of this world grow strangely dim The trials don't loom so large and temptations aren't so alluring. Here's what you need. Here's what I need. You need to see his beauty and his glory. You need to see him for who he is. Game over. When you live in the reality of that, game over. There's nothing better than that. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So we're going to need some prayer. Because even while you're sitting out there, there'll be some distractions. There'll be some things. It's really important you stay focused and uh, to really listen to this because this could truly be life-changing for you. And week in and week out, as we look at Christ, as we behold his beauty and his glory, it transforms our life. And that's my prayer this morning. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Stick take a moment. Go once again before the throne of grace. God, that is our prayer this morning. As Moses cried out to you in Exodus 33, he said, show us your glory. That's our prayer. Show us your glory. Show us your glory. Just make that your prayer, just between you and God, right now, just kind of under your breath. God, show me your glory. God, show us your infinite greatness, your unimaginable beauty. Dispel all darkness in this place with the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Open blind eyes, revive dead hearts in Jesus' name. Break the power of the thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy with the fullness of life Christ Jesus died to give us. Father, we pray that you would bring healing, health, and wholeness to each one of us as we behold your glory through the study of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So we're going to read this text in Ezekiel 1. It's one of different places in the Bible. It talks about the glory of God. But this is the wildest and most detailed description of the glory of God. And uh, you're just going to have to kind of navigate it with me. I'm going to work through it. We're going to read verses 4 through 18 and then jump to verses 22 through 28. A somewhat of a lengthy text. But I just, just bear with me as we kind of work through this. It's a pretty fascinating description here. He starts in the first three uh, verses. He says, I saw visions of God... The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, and the hand of the Lord was upon him. And we pick up our reading in verse 4. And as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces. And each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled with with burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces, and their wings thus... Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. And as for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion. And on the right side, the four had a face of an ox. And on the left side, and, on the, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which... "...touched the wing of another while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward wherever the Spirit would go. They went without turning as they went. And as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures, and the fire was bright. And out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. And as for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. And when they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. Verse 22, over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like an awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and above the expanse... Over their heads there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. And now he kind of wraps it up in verse 28. And he tells us what he was seeing here. This is where we will get most of our insight, actually. Verse 28. Like the appearance of the bow, he's seeing a rainbow, that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness, here it is, of the glory of the Lord And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is the word of the Lord. Pretty heavy-duty scene here, and so three things we're going to look at. It's that what is the glory of God? How do you know you've encountered the glory of God? And why can we experience the glory of God? Why is that that we can experience it? Let's take a look at that first question. What is the glory of God? Verse 28 answers that, such was the appearance of his likeness, the glory of God. It doesn't answer it for us, but we're going to answer it here uh, going back to the text and then other texts throughout Scripture. So what is the glory of God? Here's your first fill in the blank. It is his infinite indescribableness. It is his infinite indescribableness. The indescribableness is not a word. I had to make that up. Okay? So that's a made-up word because if you type that out, and you got Word or whatever documents. It just has that underline where it's red. So I couldn't get rid of it, no matter what I did. It's just—it's not a word, but I had, it was the only word I could use to describe that. It's indescribableness. It says infinite indescribableness. What are we seeing here? It says infinite indescribableness. I mean, that's what's going on here. I don't know if you noticed this, but 14 times he uses the word like and likeness. How many of you ever heard a teenager talk like that? Isn't that funny? It's like and like and like. Well, that's what's going on here. He doesn't know how to. He doesn't have the vocabulary to explain what he's seeing, and this is what you oftentimes see throughout Scripture that these guys have these encounters with God, and it's not like anything they've ever experienced. And so they're saying, "Well, it's like. It's kind of like this, but it's not really. But it's like, and it's and the likeness was in the, and it was like this, and it was so. So that's the only word that I could come up with. His infinite indescribableness. No words can describe him. He's struggling to describe what he's seeing. It's like when you start reading through the book of Revelation, it's the same thing. John, when he sees all that's going on, he can't describe it. So he uses the word like and likeness throughout. So for the first time, you've seen someone gives you an orange and you've never known what an orange is. And so you try to relate it to something you've already experienced in the past. And so you know what an apple is, but... So you'd say, well, the orange is kind of like an apple, but really it's not. It's kind of like an apple, but it's not like an, you know. And so it, you struggle because you don't have the vocabulary. You don't even know how to describe it. You've never had this experience before. And that's how the glory of God is. You've never, you've never experienced anything quite like the glory of God and you lack the words to fully describe God's glory. And we saw that a little bit as we studied in Psalm 8 and then Psalm 139. Uh, David, uh, writing both of those, he says, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he, he works through that and he says, When I consider the heavens the work of your fingers, the stars and the moon, how you've set my place. What is it, man that you're... He's like, oh my goodness, I, I can't wrap my mind around that. I don't understand it. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 139, I mean, we walked through that, and he talks about God's omniscience and his omnipresence and his omnipotence and his amazing love for us. And he just, he's just can't put words. He's trying to work through that. He's trying to navigate this beauty and the glory of God. Here's the second fill in the blank. So, it is his infinite indescribableness. It is his astounding attributes combined. When we studied Psalm uh, 8, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Anytime the Bible uses the word name, it's speaking of character. It's speaking of the name of God. speaking of his character. His attributes combine all of who he is. He's saying, wow, when I look at all of who you are, how majestic is your name, your character, your attributes, your greatness. All of who you are. Proverbs nine ten says that the name, the attributes of God, the character of God, all of who God is, is a is a tower, is a high tower, and the righteous run to it and are safe. It's a great verse that we find safety in, in His character, in, in His attributes, and all of who God is. How many are familiar with the term synergy? You guys, familiar with that? I had not really encountered that term much until I uh, became a medic with Phoenix Fire and went through their, their training, took anatomy and physiology, and then understood I had to do some studies on, on, with drugs And uh, understanding drug profiles and all that, how drugs interact. And it's interesting, the word synergy, it talks about how drugs interact with alcohol. And they say don't drink alcohol when you're taking certain meds. And because of the synergy effect, here's the definition for synergy. The interaction of two or more agents or forces so that their combined effect is greater than the sum of their individual effects. So with synergy, it's not 1 plus 1 equals 2. It's more like 1 plus 1 equals 5 or 10. You you add the combination together. And so it is with the attributes of God. It's great that we know that God loves us, but we also need to know that he's he's all-powerful because he might be loving, but if he's not all-powerful, he really can't take good care of me. And we also need to know that he's wise because he might be loving, but if he's not wise and really knows what's in my best interest, he really can't really love me like he needs to. And yet the Bible makes it very clear that he has all of these attributes. Yeah, he's, he's infinite in love or infinite in wisdom. He's perfect in love and he's unlimited in his power. And yes, the more you begin to see that, it creates this synergy and this sense of comfort and trust in him. And that's, that's the idea of, of the glory Of God. We studied the holiness of God last week, and His holiness, the holiness of God is His incomparable, transcendent perfection by which He has no competition and He has no contamination. And what we learned about His holiness is that the holiness of God is the core of who God is, infiltrating all of His attributes. And I I was trying to make a distinction between the two. So, So God's love is holy love. His wisdom is holy wisdom. In other words, there's no contamination. There's no... uh, He's completely pure in what he does. And there's no competitors. Nobody can compete with him. And that's the holiness of God. And so the holiness of God infiltrates all of the attributes of God. But the glory of God is his astounding attributes combined. So it kind of gives you a little bit of an idea. And so... What is the symbolism of all this stuff that we just read? There's just tons of symbolism here. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but let me just identify a couple of things. Verses 10 through 11, all the different faces represent his many attributes. You've got the face of a human, a lion, an ox, an eagle. Verse 17, you've got the wheels. The wheels are his omnipresence. He's everywhere. Verse 18, eyes on the, uh, on the wheels His is God's omniscience. He sees everything So it's a pretty fascinating picture as you study through that. Here's the third thing about the glory of God is that it is his supreme significance. It is his supreme significance. Isaiah 6, I've I've made reference to that back last week and then I'll talk about it now, but it's Isaiah encounters God. He's high and lifted up. His train fills the temple. He sees the angels. But I mean, it shakes his world. It's interesting when you study that when God shows up at different times. He shows up to Isaiah and tells Isaiah, shake. You know, it's like, boom, I'm here. You better be, you better be nervous about me being here. And he's pretty shaken. He's going, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then when he shows up to Jeremiah, remember the prophet Jeremiah? Kind of a whining prophet. He's kind of a whiner. Just like, oh, woe is me. I mean, he's all messed up. And so when, when God shows up to him, he says, hey, stop shaking. So it's kind of interesting. He says, hey, suck it up, dude. Come on. Toughen up. So it's really kind of based on where we are in our life and and what happens when God shows up and what we are most needing in our life. And uh, this idea of the glory, the glory of God, it is his supreme significance. The Hebrew word for glory in uh, our text here, verse 28, is kabod, and it means God's weightiness, and we have an English word with the same lexical range, and functions in the same way. It's the word that we have is matter. And it means solid, substantial, and it also means importance. But solid, substantial. Here, let me illustrate this for you. I think this might uh, actually help you to see this a little bit more clearly. So it's talking about matter. Weight, significance, importance. Weight, significance, importance. And and so, I, I think the thing that we need to keep in mind here, so it is his supreme significance. When the Bible says that God is glorious, it means that he is of supreme importance and nothing should matter to you like God. Does that make sense? Yeah. So nothing should matter to you quite... Like God, God should carry weight, significance, importance in our life. If anything matters to you more than God, then you are living your life for the glory of something really that will ultimately uh, crash and devastate you. So it's, it's kind of like this. I mean, you can see the, the weight, significance, importance between these two. If I drop this, there's that. That has certain mass, matter, matter. But if I drop this, <laughs> if I drop this, i got to lower it because that's too far up there. It nearly killed me this morning in the first service. But... Notice I grabbed my drink there, huh? Because I knocked it over in the first service, okay? Just so, so that carries some weight. I mean, there's something that happens when God comes into your life. It's like, boom. Boom. Now here's the issue in our lives. Sports, uh, relationships, finances, romance is more like this in our life. That wasn't funny, okay? Yeah. It was. And then God is in our life like this. Oh, yeah, yeah, God's important to me. I I committed my life to Jesus. And you look at the person's life and you go, what? doesn't make any sense. And then when you break up with your boyfriend, and it's kind of like this. And things aren't going well with you and God, but it's like, ah, no big deal. But if you understood the glory of God, sports, relationships, money, Everything, everything in life, everything in creation should be like this. And God comes along and wow. I mean, here's, here's what, you know, it's like, oh my goodness, I'm having such a hard time. My friends, they've rejected me. It's like, what the heck? God loves you. He gave his life for you. I mean, you're putting too much weight and glory in what your friends say about you. I lost my job. Oh, I mean, jobs are important. Would you say the jobs are important? Okay. But, but is he your provider? Yes. I lost my job. But he's my provider. Yes. You get the point? Okay. let me give you a couple of illustrations here as it relates to that so if you give more glory to the opinions of people more than god you're going to be inflated by praise and deflated by criticism and easily cave into peer pressure people pleasing if i give more glory to another person's love for me falling in love more than god's love for you then when that person breaks up with you or they reject you or they don't like you anymore whatever uh, You're not just going to be sorrowful. You're going to be devastated. You may even try to commit suicide. That's why oftentimes people commit suicide. Whatever they were giving their heart to is no more. So they have no more meaning and purpose in life. And so life's over for them. If you give more glory to, to what you do, that is your performance, more than what Christ has done for you on the cross then you're going to be proud when you perform well and in despair when you don't and you're going to be driven by perfectionism. If you give more glory to money than to God, wow, they got a lot of money or wow, look at them, whatever. If you give more glory to money than to God, you will be eaten up by worry and jealousy over money and may even do unethical things to get more money. So, what is the glory of God? It is the infinite indescribableness. It is His astounding attributes. It is His supreme significance. It is His breathtaking beauty. That's your next one. We're going to spend more time on this one next week. His breathtaking beauty. I think our text is 27 uh, that we're going to be looking at next week. But the New Testament word for glory is doxa, where we get our word doxology. And it means praise. Praise wonder and beauty. You've heard me say this, that great theology, the more you get to know God, the study of God, produces, uh, it, it, it gives us a great psychology. So great theology gives us healthy psychology. Why would that be? The more I get to know God, the more I have a sense of, of His acceptance, significance, security I find in Him. Therefore, it brings a sense of wholeness and that brings and it produces in you a uh, soul-satisfying doxology. The, you, the, your response to his greatness is, wow, and your response to his goodness is, mmm. nothing more satisfying. And you don't serve him to get from him. You don't obey him because you have to. You serve him because you love him. And it's a response of a heart that has been smitten by his beauty and glory. You want more of him. You want to experience more of him. You want to walk with him. You want to put him on display. You find him to be amazingly beautiful. You are attracted to him and find great delight in him. Now, C.S. Lewis struggled with this. He thought, this is crazy. Why does God command us to praise him and to glorify him? Sounds like some egotistical old grandma that needs her, you know, ego boosted or something. And that's actually, he kind of wrote a little bit about that. He said, why does God do that? And then all of a sudden he begins to realize that anybody that is healthy praises. In fact, let me read to you a little bit of a... Part of one of the things that he wrote, he says, "...the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought brought into check to check it." the world rings with praise lovers praising their mistresses uh, read, uh, readers to their favorite poet walkers praising the countryside and he goes on through a whole list and then he finishes this little article here This article is finished right here. It says, I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced minds praised most while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. So what he's just saying is that people that are enjoying things in life, they're enjoying the weather, whatever, they're going to naturally praise. Praise is the consummation. It's the completion of the enjoyment of something. And so he started thinking about this. He says, wait a minute. When God's inviting us to praise Him, to glorify Him, He's inviting us to that which will bring us the greatest amount of delight and satisfaction to know him to experience him in our life nothing will satisfy us more and uh, I mean you guys know how that works in your life you go to a great restaurant I took, uh, I, I posted this this last week some, some, a lot of you responded my dad it was his birthday 78, uh, 78 years old and I'm hoping he'll yeah praise God that's, that's by God's grace and glory to God and I'm hoping he'll go to 100 because then that means that I'll have some distance there. That it means that I'll go that much further too. Maybe. I don't know. But we'll see. But I, I, we'll see how, you know, how much God has for him. Because he's the one that calls the shot there. But I took him and he he likes hamburgers. So we took him to Five Guys. And then he likes uh, lattes. Took him to Starbucks afterwards. And so uh, we just had a great time eating Five Guys hamburgers. How many have ever been to Five Guys? So that's a great place, isn't it? You guys like it? It's good, good hamburgers. Oh, somebody back there shaking their head. But uh, but it's a good place. But when you're enjoying something like we were enjoying the hamburger, what I have on my hamburger is that I put. Uh, how close are we to lunch? But uh, it's a great hamburger. But I I put the lettuce, tomato, uh, relish, uh, uh, onions. What do they do to the onions? They, yeah, whatever whatever you said. Uh, it's not fried, but they. Uh, yeah, but it's good, whatever it is. I like it. And then barbecue sauce, and then the fries are really good. But what are you doing? You're praising. We're drinking our lattes, and we're like, Woo, this is a good latte. Thank you. Ooh, yeah, praise God. You know, and that's, you're, there's praise, praise. And all he was saying is that when you know God and you experience God, that praise is going to naturally come from your from your mouth, from your life, from who you are. Moses, Exodus 33, part of our prayer when we started Thirty-three, eighteen. he's taking the nation of Israel and they're going to be going through the wilderness to the promised land. And this is what he says, show us your glory. And in essence, when you study that, uh, God, he's asking God, he's saying, God, we would rather have your glory, your presence, and wander around in the wilderness than to go into the promised land without your glory. What was he saying? All the treasure, All the blessings, all the wealth this world has to offer doesn't even come close to the treasure of having you at the center of our lives. (laughs) Having God. Even as C.S. Lewis said, he says, the man who has God in everything else has no more than the man who has God alone. I mean, do you see God like that? That's the glory of God. If you're beginning to see that, that's the glory of God. We spend a lot of money on music and, and because we, we love the beauty of music and homes and vacations that are all beautiful. But they are only gifts from God and pointers to the only place where our ultimate desire for beauty will be fully met. And that is in the glory of God of God. There's nothing more beautiful than the glory of God. Once you've encountered His glory, you want Him infinitely more than you want anything else. Another quote. This is actually from Piper, a study that he did, and he was, uh, he used this as an illustration, this guy by the name of Charles Meisner, who, uh, or Misner, who's talking about Albert Einstein. I want to, want to read this to you, just see what he's saying here. He says, A scientific specialist in general relativity theory, Charles Misner, or meisner I don't know how to pronounce his name, expressed Albert Einstein's view of preaching like this. I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. And then Piper goes on and says, Einstein died in 1955... If he were alive today, his indictment would be even stronger because today we have the Hubble telescope sending back infrared images of galaxies of a hundred billion that may exist from as far as, you know, as we can, our eyes can see and the telescope can see. God spoke that into being. It is a playground for the Almighty And over against this majesty, we have a steady diet of Sunday morning practical how-tos and psychological soothing and relational therapy that betrays sooner or later that the preachers do not know God as they ought and do not regard Him as infinitely glorious and worthy of one focused hour a week. They are just not talking about the real thing. Einstein felt instinctively if the God of the Bible exists, and if pastors and missionaries really know him and count him their greatest treasure, then something is profoundly wrong. They are just not talking about the real thing. While our people starve for the majesty of God. That's what you need. That's what I need. Not another how to message. That'll keep you in the wilderness. Circling the mountain, you need to be captivated by the glory and the beauty of who God is. That's the Christian life. So how do we know that we've encountered the glory of God? Back to verse 28, and when I saw it, I fell on my face. I was talking to Joe Bridgewater this morning. He said, and you'll notice that that guy didn't fall asleep either. <laughs> I thought it was Good. He wouldn't fall asleep either. In the presence of God, oh my goodness, this is worship. This is worship. And I'm going to use uh, John chapter 4. Many of you are familiar with John chapter 4 as a parallel for our understanding of worship as we walk through the points here. Uh, John chapter 4 is about Jesus when he encountered the woman at the well. How many are familiar with that story? I think there's some really great understanding of that. In fact, Jesus, uh, Jesus said to the woman at the well in John uh, 4, 23 and 24 because this is what's happening to Ezekiel he's, he's fallen on his face and he's worshipping Jesus said to the woman at the well but the hour is coming and now is here and is now here when true worshippers so he's making a distinction here there's obviously false worshipers and there's true worshipers. and by the way you need to know that everyone is a worshipper you were created to be a worshipper it is what you do it is who you are Every day there is a battle for your worship. You can't help it, you can't stop it, but you can choose where to invest it. You will either worship God or you will worship something he created. And that's what he's getting at here. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. So it's a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives based on the truth, the truth of God's word. It's a hard experience based on objective truth. That God is glorious, but it's not something that you just talk about. It's something that you experience it's something you experience deep in your heart and it, and it changes your life. He becomes, he matters to you more than anything. And then he goes on and he says here, this is Jesus, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking. He's seeking you to invite you into the most amazing thing you'll ever experience and that's a relationship with him. To worship him, to to experience him. He is seeking such people to worship him God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So, the English word for worship is uh, worth shape. So, it comes. So, we got the idea of what is of value to us and of worth, and it shapes us. What we worship shapes our life. The Hebrew word means to bow down, as we see uh, Ezekiel doing right here. And then the Greek word that's found in John 4 means to turn towards and kiss. So the idea is, is giving our affection, our heart to God. That's what we see happening here. Now, there's three things that will happen when you do encounter God. If you have indeed encountered God, we're going to look at those. But let me read to you one, one more thing, one quote, one, one other quote here. This is from a guy that I just came across this last week, David Foster Wallace. And uh, he's, he was an award-winning American author, wrote novels, short stories, professor at Pomona College in Claremont, California. And I want to read a little excerpt from his commencement speech at Kenyon College, which is a liberal arts college in central Ohio. I think he has some things that are really brilliant. This guy's an atheist, though, you need to know. And you need to also know that two years after he, he s- spoke this commencement speech, he committed suicide he hung himself. But I want you to hear what he said. He's going to talk about worship. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody that was an atheist that spoke more profoundly about worship. He says everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of god or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. And you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart. And you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And so on. And he goes on and he talks about just that's just part of our culture. We, we tend to give our heart to anything and everything Other than God, let me work through the article and then eventually he says, Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. But listen to what he says here. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. Do you hear what he's saying? Freedom to be the lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms. Kingdoms. It's all in our head. If I get more money, I'm really something. He said, It's all in your head. Alone at the center of all creation. And like I said, a few years later, this guy committed suicide. He hung himself. I mean, this something ate him alive. And so he was warning uh, the graduates there with his commencement speech that something's going to eat you alive. Now, in our story, In John, something was eating this woman alive when Jesus encountered her. And it's interesting that Jesus crossed all sorts of uh, racial, gender, cultural, religious barriers. And that's why she was so shocked. And uh, she's shocked that he would even reach out to her. And here's the first, let me give you the first fill in the blank here. So how do you know that you've encountered the glory of God? It means to mentally recognize the supreme excellence of him. And so in John 4:10, parallel passage, Jesus says this to her. She's like shocked. She goes, "Wow, why are you, I can't believe that you would ask me uh, for a drink." And Jesus responds, "If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, "Give me a drink," you would have asked him, and He would have given you living water." Who's he talking about there? He's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. (laughs) He's saying, if you had a clue about who you were talking to, you would quit chasing after the things you chase and you would look to him and you would come to him and find living water. You would ask me to satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. That's what he was saying. John 6, 35, a few chapters later in the gospel of John, Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never go thirsty. That's amazing. Do you believe that? Have you had that sense of satisfaction that can only be found in him? So it's to mentally recognize the supreme excellence of God. But here's the next one. To emotionally find your deepest pleasure in him. So she's still kind of grappling around with this whole idea and she's trying to figure it out and, and so Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. What was he talking about? He's talking about the well there but he's talking about in a metaphorical way, he's saying that you drink from the well of, of, of relationships or money or climbing the corporate ladder or whatever it is, guess what? You're going to be thirsty again but whoever drinks the water of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, to mentally recognize the supreme excellence of God, to emotionally find your deepest pleasure in him. Here's what's amazing about the gospel. And Some of you, this might even be new to you. I know there's a whole lot of people in America that don't understand this. And they claim to be Christian but they don't understand it. So do I have to make a choice between the glory of God versus my happiness. I want my happiness and I want to pursue and I want to be happy but do I have to make a distinction? So if I live for his glory then I can't really be happy or I can be happy and then not live for the glory of God. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Time out. They're one in the same pursuit. You'll never be more happy, more joyful, more fulfilled than when you stop living for all of the stuff in this world and start living more and more for him and make him the center of your life. Make him the one that truly matters in your life. It's interesting that he tells the woman, go call your husband. Why do you think he did that? Was he going to rub it in her face? Some of you know the story. She had had five husbands. In fact, the guy that she was living with wasn't her husband. She'd probably given up on the whole marriage thing, but I still think I need a guy, so... There was something in her that said, if I have a guy, I matter. Life is important. And she kind of threw the whole marriage thing out. After a while, it gets a little ridiculous when you've gone five times. Let's just live together. Forget the marriage thing. And yet she was still empty. Why was Jesus saying that? He was wanting her to follow the trail back to where her heart is. What dominates your thoughts? What stirs your deepest emotion? What do you effortlessly give your time And money too. That'll show you what you're worshiping. That'll show you what's most important to you. What has gotten a hold of your heart. It's interesting. When we say to emotionally find your deepest pleasure in Him. It's not finding your deepest pleasure. It's not from him it's in him and here's the third one to volitionally live every moment of your life for him that's the third thing this is how you know you've encountered him to mentally recognize the supreme excellence of him to emotionally find your deepest pleasure in him to volitionally live every moment of your life for him the disciples come back from town with food they offer it to jesus jesus says and they were pretty hungry there's no doubt about it but jesus says no i don't need any and they go what that's crazy and then jesus says something that's pretty profound Maybe you're familiar with it. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He says, um, I have food, I have satisfaction in just living my life, not for me, but for the glory of the one who sent me. So, let me ask you this. This is pretty serious. We're, We're gonna finish up in just a moment. We'll knock out the rest, and then there's a video I'm gonna show you, but here's my question for you. Does this stuff even... And the slightest bit stir you? Does it move you? Is there something happening inside of you? Man, if you could sit through a message like this, and just like, when is this going to be over? I'm going to go to Five Guys. <laughs> Starbucks, that sounded pretty good. I mean, if, if that's what you're thinking, if that's what's going through your mind, I, I, oh my goodness, I, my, my prayer is for, is for you, that God would open your eyes to the reality of this. Here's what I, I hate to tell you this. But lostness is blindness to the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And if you can see the light of the gospel of glory of Christ, if you can look at the cross, and if you can think about what He's done for you in the cross, and it doesn't move you, oh my goodness, you're lost. And I would pray that God would open your blind eyes and revive your dead heart. I would plead with him for you. I do every week that you would begin to see him and his majesty. Your heart would be smitten by him. Now, you could have once seen the glory of God, there's no doubt about it, and experienced that. Maybe you're just in a place right now That it's just kind of like, ah, you're going through a lot of things. And so, you know, the question is, what do you do when you're not feeling it? There's, you know, we're multi-dimensional image bearers of God. There's physical, there's emotional, there's spiritual dimensions in that. You've got to address all of those. But there are times in all relationships that feelings of love dry up. But, uh, so what do you do? You do the acts of love despite your feelings. And over time, you will get through those dry spells. That's what you do, whether it's a, whether it's a vertical, vertical or horizontal relationship. It is a mistake to think that you must feel love to give love. In fact, to give love when you don't feel love is greater love and greater evidence of your love. Because having encountered him, there are certainly times in my life, I mean, when I've taught this up here, there have been times it just felt dry. It's like, oh, and I've gotten on my knees before God and cry out, God, stir my heart But I'm going to continue to serve you whether I feel it or not because I love you. I've had those encounters with him in the past and I work through those and I begin to look at my life psychologically, relationally, spiritually, physically. Oftentimes mine is I push myself too hard. I've made something else matter more than God. Oftentimes it's my perfectionism or it's my drivenness. And I'm just exhausted. And sometimes just a good night of sleep, I wake up in the morning and I have an encounter with God, a good night of sleep, sometimes I'll do that. Pretty amazing. It can be as simple as that. Whatever it might be. Once you've experienced his presence, his absence is unbearable. Man, you just want more and more of him. You will do everything you can To experience more of him. So how do you know you've encountered God? Mentally recognize his supreme excellence. Emotionally find your deepest pleasure in him. Volitionally live every moment of your life for him. But why why can we experience his glory? He gives us a little bit of a clue to this right here. Verse 28. Like the appearance of the bow. The rainbow. That's the next fill in the blank. Because of the rainbow. His glory would kill us because of our sinfulness. But it's the rainbow. What's about the rainbow? Next fill in the blank. A sign of God's grace. It's a sign of God's grace. Genesis 9, is it talked about the rainbow. By the way, the Hebrew word for that rainbow is actually, it's a war bow. And uh, it's interesting that uh, Charles Spurgeon taught about this in Genesis chapter 9. And he actually said it's, it's uh, significant. How the war bow is, in fact, this was after Noah. You guys are familiar with the story. Noah got out of the ark. God used his wrath upon all of mankind, wiped him out, and saved his family, Noah. And the ark, Noah gets out of the ark. He makes a sacrifice to God. God is pleased. And he puts the rainbow in the sky and says, I'm not going to wipe out mankind with the flood anymore. I'm going to hang up my war bow. And uh, it's interesting. Charles Spurgeon says it's, it's significant in the direction that the bow is pointed. It would be one thing if the if the the rainbow was pointed downward as as the arrows are pointed towards us towards mankind because the arrows represent certainly the judgment of God and it would be almost as if God was saying, "Hey, you know what? I'm not going to fire any arrows at you right now as long as you do everything you're supposed to do. But if you get out of line, I'm gonna." But he says the the bow is is looking towards God almost as if God is saying. I'm not going to bring judgment upon you, and I want you to have relationship with me. And, and even if something goes wrong in our relationship, if you do something wrong, I will take the arrows for you. And when did that happen? That happened on the cross for you and I. And years later, Jesus died, and it says, it tells us actually, In fact, your next fill in the blank, Christ emptied himself of his glory. Isaiah 53 says that he had no beauty that we would desire him. He emptied himself of his glory. So he was rejected. He died on the cross. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 talks about that. Christ died to give you the deepest longing of your heart, which is God. Next fill in the blank, so that we could experience his glory. Where's the ultimate revelation of the glory of God? 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It's in the face of Jesus, Him dying on the cross. He's telling us that that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We mess up, we blow up, but He died for us to forgive us of our sins. And not only does He forgive us of our sins, but then He he takes our lives and we give Him the pieces of our lives and He begins to put all the pieces back together. He brings about a wholeness. And He told us that He would never leave us or forsake us. That's the glory of God. To look into the face of God and to, to receive His His affirmation, his approval, his acceptance, his security, and his significance of us. Here's the last one. To behold, in beholding his glory, we become whole. We're going to talk more about that next week. So as we behold him, as we make him, that he begins to matter more than anything. That's where that wholeness begins to take place in our life more and more. We'll talk more about it next week. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's pray. And I want you to watch this video. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this message. God, we, we long to see your glory. And even as we play this video right now, Lord, may there be a, may this be a place of worship, a place that, that we experience you, that we would know you and experience you, that we find our deepest satisfaction in you. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Stand with me for closing prayer. We're going to pray with our eyes open. Let me give you a blessing here. Everybody look up here. This is what you need. This is what all of us need. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. That's what you need. You need to know that his face is upon you and be gracious to you. You see his love, his approval. He accepts you. He brings you into the place that your heart has always longed for. In all of your pursuits, in all of your accomplishments and achievements, this is what you need more than anything is him and him alone. And may he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. See, his grace will give you amazing peace and then you can face anything. And I pray that over you in the name of our amazing Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.